Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I've just returned from Spain. I was there for two weeks and had a lovely time, learned a ton, and I may be in Europe, relocated very soon. It is a great pleasure to welcome a very courageous man, Tom Muller, who has written a book called Extra Virginity, The Sublime and Scandalous World of Olive Oil. This is a New York Times bestseller where he beautifully, masterfully shares the stories, the history about the olive oil trade, both the romantic side of it, the historical side of it, the food side of it, and the dark underbelly of the olive oil trade, the international olive oil trade. Now, it has been said that olive oil has a 4,000-year history of being a driving force in the Mediterranean world, in the area of machines, people, and imagination. It is said to have entered the Golden Age in Greece. People talk about olive oil being used to ritualize anointing, kind of a celebration of the male body that makes men's bodies glisten when they're nude. It's said to sometimes have even caused homosexuality, this olive oil. Can you imagine that? I don't know what's happening in Los Angeles and New York, but people must be bathing in olive oil all over the place. Tom's work has demonstrated through his thorough research, Columbo-like research, that in fact, olive oil and extra virgin olive oil may not be pure olive oil. In fact, a lot of it is laced with stuff you wouldn't believe. I'm sorry to burst your bubble, you olive oil lovers, but one of the great things Tom has done is he has made us aware so that we actually can have the opportunity of enjoying this beneficial, healthy oil. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Tom Mueller to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Good morning, Kim. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. I really loved your book. And anybody who's interested in history and a beautiful piece of writing, pick up Extra Virginity, The Sublime and Scandalous World of Olive Oil. I really enjoyed it and learned a lot. Let's talk a little bit about how you got into this. There was something that happened to you before the book. What was it? Yeah, I um, actually, I'd been living in Italy for some time before I, I bumped into this topic, and I hadn't really been a foodie or hadn't really thought a whole lot about food. Obviously, living in Italy, you run into some pretty good food, but I hadn't thought about it analytically, let alone uh, investigatively. And I had just written a story for The New Yorker on um, computer chess programming, nothing related to this, and was speaking with my editor about what the next assignment might be, and the topic of olive oil came up. And I had heard a vague report of a, um, of a port down in southern Italy where the farmers, the olive farmers, had blockaded the port to, to protest the importation of various vegetable oils. There was a protest at the port. Talk about that. Okay, good. And I had heard a report of protests by olive producers down in southern Italy who had blockaded the port um, to protest the importation of huge tanker loads of vegetable oils that were miraculously um, and criminally uh, becoming olive oil. At least that's what they said. And this report really caught my attention. I thought, that's kind of interesting, intriguing tale. Um, and uh, eventually agreed um, with my editor that that would be my next assignment and started in on olive oil, thinking naively that it would be a pretty quick, fairly tasty, fun assignment. Um, years later, I'm still learning about olive oil, <laughs> not only its historical and its cultural and its religious valences, but also its criminal side. And, uh, and it's really, for me, become a kind of a tip of the iceberg for 
food quality in general, because all of the questions that I've learned to ask about olive oil, we ought to be asking about a lot of other foods as well. Talk a little bit about the DiCarlos, their background. I, I mean, people will read the whole book, but just give a flavor for the work of the DiCarlos and the contribution they've made to the industry. Yeah, this uh, this family down in southern Italy, down in Puglia, which is sort of the olive basket of Italy, that produces the region that produces more than forty percent of of Italy's olives. Uh, they really got my attention um, and put a face, a human face, on who loses when there is um, dirty games being played in the in in a food industry, and in particular in olive oil. Um, there are a, a family that's been growing olives and making oil for something like 350 years. They've, they're incredibly hospitable people, incredibly passionate people. One of the things I learned is that no one is in olive oil for the money um, because it's almost impossible to make money, honestly, in olive oil. They're in it because they simply can't help themselves. They have to make olive oil. And the DiCarlo family is one of those families that's just so passionate about making great oil. And they continue to up their game every year. They're uh, emotionally attached to their trees, but they're also good business people. I, this is a really, really good, uh, a classic case of the small Italian business um, and the food fanatic, let's say, in terms of quality. Well, I spent several days with them um, and really got their story on, on what was going on. I mean, it, what really got my attention was uh, La Signora de Carlo, the mother, um, the, the matriarch of the family, holding up a bottle of her oil, which we had just been eating at lunch, and saying, you know, this this costs us a lot of work to do. Um, this costs us an enormous amount of work to do. There's, there's, there's something like six euros a liter just in labor here, um, but we make it the right way. Now, you can go just up the street to the supermarket and get an, an extra virgin olive oil, in quotes, for two ninety nine. Um, what do you think they put in those bottles? And that's a statement that really hit home to me, um, because it's not only cheating the DiCarlos and undercutting them, but it's also cheating every consumer who walks in there and, and um, trustingly buys that cheap oil. I think most of us have a very innocent relationship to the use of oils, particularly olive oil, that we assume that if it's from the country of Italy or Greece, that it's a priori pure, just pure, pure grade, an assumed higher standard of oil, when in fact it's not. Is that correct? Unfortunately, yeah, they're magnificent oils. Some of the best oils in the world, I would say the best oils in the world, are made in Italy, but most of them don't make it across the water. Um, and there are all these games which are legal um, but immoral, in my view. Um, you know, putting product of Italy um, big, in big letters and the Italian flag on a, on a product that actually simply means it was packed in Italy. Um, but it doesn't mean that the oil was, um, was, was from Italian olives, far from it. Um, uh, even made in Italy. It should be 100% Italian, but in fact, uh, in many cases, it's something else. There are various games that importers play um, to make sure that they get, you know, they sell the cheapest stuff they can at the highest margin possible. So it's really, it's, it's really shameful. And, and, and the Italian government itself is being, I mean, the image of Italy is being undercut because these oils are really not good. Once you have a good oil, you say, wait a second, what? What was that other stuff I was eating all these years? You, you immediately, the light bulb goes on. <laughs> you realize you've been had. Well, I don't know about Europe because you're in Europe. I can tell you in the United States, people are way more savvy now about oils, dangerous oils, and the distinction between different oils like coconut oil and soy oil and grapeseed oil and all that, and all these different oils about what happens in the body when you have them. So a lot of people have learned over time that olive oil is really good for you. It's healthy for you. Just don't burn it up. 
you know, use it in salads, use it on other things, but don't burn it up in your pan. But now what you're describing really is that most of the olive oil is laced with stuff. And some of the stuff you put in the book is horrifying. Tell us what some of it is laced with. Well, I mean, there are just straightforward scams where people will take um, soybean oil or sunflower seed oil and blend it uh, with beta carotene uh, to give it flavor and, and chlorophyll to give it color and sell this extra virgin olive oil. I mean, a lot of that stuff happens in the States as well as in oh, sure. Italy because it's, because it's easier to do it in the States. In, in Italy, there are lots of checks and controls against that sort of thing. still happens some, but it's, there are at least checks and controls. In America, it's the Wild West because the FDA has not uh, for some time and, and as far as I know, will not uh, look into olive oil. They have other priorities and an enormous list of Things that are considered dangerous to 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 human health uh, that are that come before olive oil. So they pretty much told me, you know, until we get more funding, and I can sort of sympathize with them, we're not going to be able to touch this. So it, the consumer is kind of left out in the cold. As is the producer. I mean, the producers in California who are doing a good job. The, a few producers in Georgia and various other parts of America, um, they're on their own pretty much when it comes to competing uh, against a false product that claims to be the same as theirs. Well, is there really no way anymore for us to know, almost like the distinction, like wines have labels, they tell you how old the grape is, where it was from, you know, there's all these labels. Can't that be done with some of the olive oils that are out there that are really legitimate and good and pure? Certainly. I, I think the, the, the best, really, the, there can be a certain amount of government oversight, there can be a certain number of laws passed and so on, but the key thing is, as, and you pointed to wine, I think that's a great example, as soon as the consumer starts to get a little educated about what good olive oil really is and how you tell it from the bad stuff, um, the whole problem goes away. Uh, because, you know, if the market demands uh, fresh, bitter, pungent olive oil that tastes of olive fruit, um, then, then all of the other stuff is very rapidly going to disappear. It's just going to lose out. But the problem is right now people don't know the basic questions to ask about what is good olive oil and where do I get it. Um, so I think that's, I mean, that's step one is to educate the consumer to know the difference and to know why they should care. What is the role of the International Olive Oil Council with respect to your findings? What has been your experience of whether they're helping or not? Initially, um, I mean, in, in, the, in the 90s or the 80s, 90s, um, they were a critical organization setting new guidelines. And in, in fact, they're finding the, the, the sort of the most important a way to determine whether an olive oil was extra virgin or not, which is not surprisingly chemical. It's actually fairly easy to dodge the chemical analysis. But sensory, in other words, taste test, the, the olive oil, International Olive Oil Council may, invented and codified elaborately this, um, uh, the, the, the formal panel test for olive oils. And it works very, very well. When you have a trained panel, there's never a question um, about whether, whether their findings are correct. Uh, there will be people who will question that. I mean, there are lots of importers who say, ah, the taste test is so subjective and so on. They're just covering their bad products because a, a panel test done according to the International Olive Council rules um, always works to, in, in finding defects. problem is that since, since the mid-'90s, um, that organization has gradually drifted towards the industry and now, in my view, largely represents the lowest common denominator. They want to include everyone. They don't want tests or chemical tests that are particularly rigorous. And um, in, large, uh, in large part, they're under the sway of industry. So unfortunately, in, in my view, they don't serve the very strong purpose that they once did. 
Can you talk a little bit about Mike Bradley and his experience in Oakland, California, and talk about who he is? I think there was something sad about that, and I think it's relevant to mention. Right. Well, you know, uh, uh, the Bradleys started off um, in this industry, um, you know, dealing with what, what olive oil was available in America. And at first, they dealt with stuff that, uh, this is what we're, we're talking 20 years ago, 25 years ago, um, they dealt with stuff that they weren't sure about, and they, did, they weren't smart yet on olive oil. And um, he, t- he described to me, and I described in the book one time where he was an unwitting um, go between between an adulterator and and his client. Um, they found out later that he had actually sold one of this guy's products down in Los Angeles to one of his clients, and it turned out that some of the barrels in the shipment were adulterated. So he's grown up on the mean streets. Um, the whole family, however, has caught the olive oil bug, the fascination with great olive oil. They now travel the world six months of the year. Um, they're in the mills or in the northern hemisphere, in the southern hemisphere, obviously. The harvest happens six months apart in north and south hemispheres. Um, they are incredible importers of great oil, and and it's it's pretty exciting to see that evolution and and to to taste some of the products that they get in. I think the event that you're referring to is the um, importation um, on uh, from one of his clients. Um, I believe it was in Spain of a large shipment of oil um, that when it arrived. His quality control person smelled naphthalene, so mothballs. Is this the story that you're talking about? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, an enormous 11,000-liter um, uh, bladder of olive oil, and this guy started to offload it into a tank, and it smelled of mothballs. And he said, wait a second, what's going on here? They eventually found that the container in which it had been shipped um, had been treated on the previous shipment. Um, evidently, there was something that was susceptible to moths, uh, with a heavy dose of naphthalene, and that naphthalene had soaked into the container and then g- gone through the vapor barrier of this of this I don't know plastic um, shipping bladder and entered the olive oil. Now, olive oil is a great collector of of, of smells and tastes, and it collected a lot of naphthalene. So um, then they they called various officials around the state and around the nation, saying, "Look, we've got a problem here. We've got a product that should not be sold." It's in a vastly above the legal limit of naphthalene in the food product. What do we do? And everyone just sort of shrugged and said, it's your problem. We're not, we don't know what to do with it, but we're not going to deal with it. And um, in and, and the end, um, he said, look, and I described this in my book too. He said, look, I'm going to release this to my client who may or may not sell it straight to consumers. Um, it's your problem now. And at that point, um, uh, people with sirens arrived. He was read his rights. All sorts of things happened. Only when he pushed and said, "Look, this is this needs to be fixed. I do not feel right about send it, selling this, you know, into the market without some protection from consumers." Um, the event, the product was eventually taken and destroyed at great cost. At great you know, cost to who? Every, Tom, at great cost. Well, great cost to the state. I okay. presume. I mean, the people yeah. who actually eventually had to take it on board and and destroy it. Great cost to Mike Bradley because he didn't get any money for a, a large supply of olive oil. Um, but for every person like Mike Bradley who does the right thing, you can bet there are a dozen or a hundred who just say, "Ah, oh, you know, that'll wear off. I'm sure it was a mistake. Uh, blend it with something else and sell it." The notion that that the free market will ensure our best <laughs> our best interests as consumers and that the FDA cannot be given um, nor- a vastly greater um, supply of resources in order to do its job, I think that's really dangerous. 
I think you're right. I think it's also interesting that any type of oil or food substance or liquid substance would be put in a plastic container in general, knowing what we know about plastic, off-gassing, the whole bit, particularly the permeability of olive oil, right? It just takes it right in and breathes it right in. So um, exactly. what ended exactly. up happening to him? Well, um, he ended up uh, losing his an, an entire shipment of oil, which was destroyed. He ended up um, uh, in a, opening a lawsuit against um, the um, shipping company that had, without his knowledge, um, basically tainted this container and used a tainted container to ship his food. Um, but as far as I know, nothing nothing has moved there. It's sort of a, hitting a sand sandbag. So I don't know the ultimate result of all this, but the, the news is that consumers are safe, but the people who try to do the honest thing are quite often exposing themselves to a huge loss, if not more. So is it correct to say, is there no such thing as virgin olive oil? Really, is it a title that doesn't make a difference? Yes. In a nutshell, the term has a very clear legal definition. Extra virgin is a very clear legal definition. Virgin has a very clear clear legal definition. The problem is that those laws are not enforced um, by and large. Um, and and, you, and, and uh, there are no um, organizations or no government offices that are going into stores, taking bottles off the shelf, testing them and saying, hey, wait a second, it says extra virgin on the label, but it, it ain't, or it ain't even from olives. And uh, and I find this pretty outrageous. Now, I, admittedly, a lot of people say, well, you know, it's a really first-world problem. There are bigger problems and so on. Yes and no. Um, on the other hand, if you happen to have, you know, a soybean allergy or a peanut allergy, and there's some peanut oil or some soybean oil in there, um, that could be a problem. If that olive oil is being sold not in stores but to hospitals, schools, as part of the, you know, um, the, the cafeteria, uh, or what's going to happen to people who are already um, compromised in their health, and you know, who happen to have a peanut or a soybean allergy. I mean, there are lots of scenarios in which we need, it seems to me, to be able to guarantee that what the label says in our food actually represents the truth. You had described the experience of silence at the port authorities and silence with the customs officials with respect to stepping up and taking accountability and doing something about it, where everybody was kind of turning a blind eye. They could have done something, and they could do something, but it's not happening. Am I correct? Yeah, and that's uh, ports around the world, unfortunately. Right. classic case where enormous amounts of money flows, um, very, very wealthy importers and exporters, uh, port officials who are probably usually overworked and often underpaid. Um, it's, It's a nightmare scenario for ensuring that laws are properly enforced. Do you agree that olive oil enhances the body's electric charge and somehow encourages a male same-sex desire? <laughs> <laughs> that, that was an interesting. That was, that was so funny. Theory. Uh, I think it was more visual, actually, than 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 chemical. Um, and I haven't put it to the test myself, but uh, my understanding is that um, you know the argument is that in fifth-century BC Greece, um, in Sparta in particular. Um, men started oiling up for sports. And at the same time, there is a, a new artistic movement of full-sized bronze gods and goddesses, but particularly gods, in the nude. And these bronzed athletes oiled up for sporting events and nude, in the nude, because, because Greek sports at that time were done in the nude. Um, and, uh, and the bronze gods standing around in the gymnasia and the baths and so on get, began to look a lot alike. Um, 
And so the, and there's this celebration of the human form, there's this accentuation of the human form, because it's all shiny and glistening, you've got to see a little better. Uh, the sense is, I think, that um, that could have gone along with what was also known to be um, a growing, um, um, well, let's say, culture of war um, and homosexuality in, in Sparta at that time. So I think it was sort of one of the active ingredients in this whole cultural development, but it didn't actually have a, a chemical reaction, as far as I know. But who knows? Olive oil is magic stuff. That's true. Just think, people that are using olive oil in their salads, they could end up gay. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or straight, who knows? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Oh, um, I want to talk about page 27 where you write, Olive oil was the greatest renewable energy source in antiquity, which burned as hot as benzene and had twice the caloric content of carbon. It said at Pyrgos, we find it playing a central role in a number of industries, including three perfumes, textiles, and metallurgy, which were the central pillars of the Cypriot economy and the main goods for long-distance trade via shipping routes and caravans. So basically, in earlier times, olive oil was beyond anything that we just ate and was part of a foodstuff. Absolutely. I mean, olive oil in the classical world was every bit as important um, as petroleum is today. Um, and in fact, the word petroleum comes from two, two Greek words, petra and oleum, um, which are um, uh, olive oil from a stone. So, you know, um, it, it, olive oil was a critical fuel, um, not only for lamps, uh, but also for furnaces and 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 um, heating um, heating the baths, heating the gymnasia. Um, it was um, the active ingredient of holy oils in in the great religions around the Mediterranean. Um, you know, people would anoint with oils uh, as part of religious ceremonies. That, of course, seeped into Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, um, where olive oils and olive trees um, appear constantly in the sacred texts. Uh, obviously, it was an important food, too, and the Romans had dozens of different types of olive oil, and they, they, in their Roman way, classified it according to the best kind, the worst kind, the kind for slaves. Um, so it really was an absolutely essential kind of um, active ingredient and trade um, object for uniting classical culture. Uh, one of the most graphic illustrations of this is um, what, what is called Monte Testaccio or Mount Potsherd, just outside of Rome, and it's in the in, in the main. It's it's in, in the center of Rome, um, and it's this huge hill, about a mile around and a couple hundred, three hundred feet high, um, that consists of seventy-five to eighty million um, amphora or terracotta pots that have been used to import olive oil from usually from Spain and North Africa into Rome to feed the Roman populace and to drive their engines and to uh, supply their holy oils and everything else. It was a critical thing and, and an international trade with the Romans. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. We are living in one of the most exciting and dangerous times in history. Many of us are being challenged to turn away from parasitic systems of enslavement and misery and move into different life-giving activities commercial opportunities, and communities. Transition is upon us right now. The seizure of the world's natural resources, the poisoning of our food, water, and air, and the total electronic surveillance of our lives is forcing many of us to develop new rules of engagement for being in the world. 
Doing business today is way more complex and nuanced. The electronic age is a mixed bag. If you want to live in a more humane world, don't confuse electronic communication with real relationships or knowing who your neighbors are or how they're doing or the importance of sitting down with your family and having meals together. This is real life. Practically everything we've been indoctrinated to believe about life and work is out of touch with what's available to us today. New discoveries about non-locality and consciousness are not only mind-boggling, they are game changers that require us to embrace paradox and ambiguity. Beings and agencies that insist on using deceptive practices, protocols, and instruments for market and industrial domination will eventually realize they are at the tail of a riveting new industrial complex of markets, projects, and products that they never perceived. This new complex is emerging. Receptivity is a human imperative. Imagination is an agency of transport. The current behind the currency matters. And our children and future generations are counting on us to prepare the way for them. I'm Kim Greenhouse. I'm the chief executive officer of the Rainmaking Company, a manifestation agency, a leadership agency, and a development agency. Feel free to call for our rainmaking services both on an advisory and development level, 626-398-8652. And back to the show. Are olive trees unique to Italy and Greece mostly, and then Spain, or what? You've just named the three biggest producers of oil. Spain okay. by far, Italy second, and Greece a distant third. But in terms of where olive trees grow, they grow throughout the Mediterranean, north and south, um, and clear on out into eastern Turkey, um, and, and since, um, you know, for the last 500 years, they've been exported to the colonies, so they grow throughout South America. Um, they're in Australia and New Zealand. Some very, very good oil is made there. Uh, they're in Japan. Obviously, they're in California. Anywhere where there were missions or, or um, um, monastic orders, one of the things they typically do is plant an olive grove, not only for food, but also, again, for light and for holy oil. So... Um, olive trees have, have taken root all around the world, but their real core is in the eastern Mediterranean. And probably, I mean, most scholars think that they probably um, were first cultivated in the area of around Israel and ancient Phoenicia. Yes. Yes. Have you had Israeli olive oil? I have. I've had Israeli oil from both sides of the fence, as it were. Yes. And uh, it's a very tough place to make olive oil because it's extremely hot, as you know. And uh, but there are some excellent oils. And and again, it's it's a it's a central part not only of uh, of the t- of the table uh, ritual, but also of the year. Um, you know, the harvest is a big social event where people come, families reunite around the trees and so on. And frankly, um, olive trees are being used in 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 Israel and the West Bank. Um, as as a symbol of control of the land too. I mean, um, there are areas where olive groves have sprouted up recently, quite recently, to try to um, demonstrate the control of a certain patch of territory by one group or another. Um, and destruction of olive trees, likewise, is a way of demonstrating that uh, those people don't have claim to the land. So, olive trees and oil have a have a very strong political as well as um, uh, uh, social and and uh, and food meaning. Interesting. Talk a little bit about your experience of olive oil in Spain and about the trade in Spain and your experience. How is Spain doing 
with this? Spain is, is really a, a, an unbelievable thing to see, particularly southern Spain, um, Andalusia. Uh, it, it is, the, by a factor of three, the biggest producer of olive oil in the world. And southern Spain, Andalusia in particular, it has to be seen to be believed. It's a, it is a sea, an ocean of olive trees. Um, in some places, literally all, everywhere you can see is covered with olive groves. And um, millions and millions and millions of trees, it's quite, it's quite striking. Um, most of the oil, uh, on average, the oil produced in Spain is very low quality, um, partly because you, you simply cannot pick all that stuff off the trees and get it to the mill in time. Um, that many trees, uh, a lot of the, of the harvesting is done off the ground with kind of street sweeper-type devices, and that's not going to make good oil. But some of the best and most innovative and most um, quality, passionate producers I've ever met are Spanish, too. So it's really uh, a country of extremes in terms of olive oil production. You know, in southern Spain, they're having a huge water shortage problem. As you're describing the millions of trees there, I'm sure they need more water for those trees, too, if they're in a drought. So that's just something to note. It is a problem, and, and, and irrigation is an important part of making sure that, that you know, every crop is is a good big crop. The good news about olive trees, though, is that they're, um, I mean, they're, they're a semi-desert or even desert tree, and it's a wonder to see they may not give you the biggest crop every year, but they can survive in conditions that would just kill off most trees. Uh, it's a wonder to see a tree right at the edge of the desert um, producing, you know, flowering and producing fruit almost by magic. I think it probably may have had something to do that and the longevity of the tree with with the way in which it's worked its way into our, our myths and our religions as a symbol of strength and, and almost a magical tree. What does cold-pressed mean? I never got it. You know, were these all these definitions of food? Yeah. <laughs> what is it? Yeah. What is well, it? Once upon a time, it meant something. I mean, it doesn't really mean anything anymore. It's a bit like first-pressed. Um, it's, it's a marketing term. Once upon a time, you would take your olives, you'd crush them in a mill, so a grindstone, um, you then take them and put them on mats and squish them with a, with a hydraulic press. And the first stuff that came out would be first pressed. Um, then, uh, and, and that was the easiest stuff to come out, it was also the best oil. Then you'd dump some very hot water on that, and the heat would um, allow an extraction of second pressed oil. Now that oil was typically, it had been compromised by the heat of the hot water, so it didn't taste nearly as good. It was sort of the dregs, dregs oil, but it was still olive oil. Um, so it's first pressed and second pressed. Nowadays, um, none of the, no extra version is second pressed. So first cold, uh, first pressed is is meaningless because there is no second pressed extra version olive oil. It doesn't. It's not by law. You can't do that. And and cold, you can't really get um, oil out of cold olives anyway. It has to be twenty six, twenty seven degrees centigrade. So you know we're getting up around around ninety degrees Fahrenheit. Um, it has to be warm to get the olive, the olive oil out of the olives. So it's, that's also a misnomer, really. Um, you know, first cold press is sort of um, a couple lies in one, and it's yet the, 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 the marketing term that most consumers ask about first. Talk a little bit about the olive pumice oil. I was horrified reading this, and I do want you to break this to the public about olive pumice oil and what it is. Explain what it is and what happened with it. Yeah, olive pomace oil is something that everyone should know about um, <laughs> because they've probably eaten a lot of it without knowing it, and it's really something that should not be eaten. As one of the top, Lanfranco Conte, one of the top world authorities on, on oil chemistry told me, you know, the, the industries are going to beat me up for saying this, but this stuff should not be ingested by human beings. Anyway, 
when you make olive oil, you take olives, you crush them, um, you spin out the oil, typically in a centrifuge, and what's left is a sludge that you take, uh, and it's called pumice. And you sell that to a pumice refinery, uh, which buys this junk up and takes it to their, to their usually very smelly uh, facility, uh, cooks it to, to dry it in these big um, ovens, these big furnaces, w- which are typically caked with decades of, of carbon residue and so on. Not good places to, keep, to get food. Anyway, um, and then, um, treat, and then du- you dump a, a, an industrial solvent on them, like hexane, and you get some oil out. You get a, the other 7% that you, lo- that you didn't get out when you made olive oil. problem is you've just made it from, ju- from the dregs of the dregs, and you've treated it in ways that are very, very unhealthy. And then you've dumped an industrial solvent on it. It's refined after that, but it's a very low-grade product, and it has some pretty big health questions. Um, um, the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which are cancer, carcinogenic, um, have been found in olive pomace oil. And yet this stuff is quite often sold in stores um, either as part of an oil, uh, uh, another oil, a blend of oils, or they write olive in big letters and oil in big letters, and the pumice sort of down in small letters at the, at, at the bottom. Uh, so people think they're actually buying olive oil. And in the um, food uh, and it's widely used as an adulterant for real olive oil, and it's also widely used in places like uh, pizzeria and and other places where this cheap oil can be used in cooking without people apparently without people uh, noticing the difference. Now, if you used really good oil, you immediately taste the difference. But it's a, it's a way to cut corners. But it's a very unhealthy thing, and and it's being passed off to many people as olive oil. Let's talk a little bit about rabati. This is a sad kind of story, but it has some important pieces in it for the public. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about Ribati. Domenico Ribati was one of the number one um, importers of olive oil into Italy in the, in the 1980s and early 90s. Um, he was also uh, the supplier to some of the big companies, um, Bertoli, Carapelli, and other big names um, were buying from him. And, um, and he claims, and I'm, I've met him and I interviewed him, and he claims that he was set up um, by people that he never did anything wrong. Um, the authorities have a slightly different view of his activities and say that he imported massive quantities of hazelnut oil from Turkey um, and then in his labs and in his um, facility blended that with olive oil and, and sold it as extra virgin olive oil. Um, and my money's on the authorities, frankly, uh, because the evidence is pretty good. I have all the trials. I read them pretty carefully. But in any case, um, he, he's someone who, who doesn't, I don't think, fully understand that there is an outright war is a, is a strong word these days, but there is a very strong struggle between industrial producers who don't own olive trees and have never seen an olive tree. They buy other people's oil and sell other people's oil and blend it and call it extra virgin olive oil. It may even be. And on the other hand, people who own olive trees, take care of olive trees, in what you might call estate olive oil producers. There's a war going on because whereas in wine, the estates are recognized. You know, you have Chateau Latour, you have uh, Sassicaia, you have um, widely internationally recognized names for very specific types of wine, very specific grapes and very specific geographies. In olive oil, none of that exists. All you have is the word extra virgin. And that no longer means anything. It's so overstretched and, and debased as a word that it no longer means anything. So basically you have... Um, a fight um, for people's attention and for people's money between 
um, organizations that are trying for the cheapest possible thing, and organizations or small families, typically, but also big companies that are trying to make the very best oil possible, and they have the same label. And, and unless a consumer has done what I've done, how are they supposed to know? Well, talk a little bit about what happened to him, though. Didn't he go to prison? He did. Um, eventually, he he was he was arrested for having for having um, you know uh, adulterated um, extra virgin olive oil and sold it to to um, companies that then resold it to consumers. Um, and he spent some time in prison. Um, uh, it, it's it, again, he's unrepentant, and a lot of people say, "Well, you know, that's that's uh, this is part of the game here." Um, I also had lunch with one of his business associates, um, who is who has never gone to jail, who has never actually been convicted of anything, who prosecutors say um, has done even more um, in terms of importing and exporting um, dubious product. But um, the fact is that um, in Italy there are laws, and occasionally um, the the perpetrators go to jail. In America, um, there are almost laws almost don't exist, and the few that do exist are never um, enforced. So, uh, whereas in Italy, some justice is done, uh, in America, it's, it is truly the Wild West. Where are you from? You're from the U.S.? Yeah, I was born in New York, and we moved around quite a bit. I lived in California for a while, and Texas for a while, and upstate New York for a while. Wow. What brought you to the Ligurian countryside? Uh, yeah, well, my wife, basically, who is Italian. There you um, go. My first trip to Italy was 1984, while I was in college, and uh, and I immediately caught the bug. Um, it was something that I, uh, um, I, it really resonated with me, and uh, so ever since then, I was I've been looking for ex- excuses to go back, and and now I've been living here for a really long time now. Where did you meet your wife? Uh, in London, actually. Really? Working, we're working in London together in a completely unrelated field, investment banking, of all things. Really? Yeah. Were you writing an article about investment banking? No, I was working in mergers and acquisitions. At oh, you're Goldman kidding. And so oh, my God. <laughs> that's, that's, Woo! In, in the early 90s, before you, know, before you had to hang your head when you mentioned that. that I know, you that, can't that, use that the GM, the Goldman Sachs. Just, yeah, the, the scarlet letter. Oh, my God. Well, mergers and acquisitions is not dirty like the rest of their business. I don't believe it's as dirty as the rest of their business. So you're, it's you're not as dirty. No, right. it really you really do have to have a product to buy and sell. Yes, um, but but it's still pretty. Uh, unfortunately, I think the whole thing is. It, it, it was the, the, at, back then there was still a considerable talk and some lip service, but some genuine talk uh, about value for your client. You know what's right for the client, and the client will come back to you if you treat them right. Now it's. You know, take it and take the money and run. <laughs> that whole notion of the client, the client is the Muppet, right? You know, <laughs> goodness gracious. I've done about, I don't know, 38 to 40 shows on finance. So that's All why, right. yeah, uh-huh. a lot. I've covered everything in sight. High frequency trading, derivatives, credit default swaps. Fascinating. All of the commodities. I'm writing a book now on whistleblower law, and, and a lot of the, one of the key new frontiers of whistleblower law is the, um, you know, financial services. And so there's some incredible stories um, popping now about, about um, you know, insider looks at what really is going on in these big big banks and the kinds of cynicism. I mean, the funny thing is that most of it's public knowledge. Yes. People just don't want to know. Right. And a billion plus a year in, in lobbying, it's amazing what things get you. Amazing, amazing. What is next for you? You're going to have a book on whistleblowing and finance? Well, it's, it's 
whistleblower law, first okay. the False Claims Act, and then various other whistleblower provisions that not only protect whistleblowers from when they come forward to report fraud, but also give them an incentive, and in some cases pay them a substantial fee for uh, if they are successful in proving fraud. Um, so that's that's the next nonfiction product uh, project. Uh, I'm working on various articles, and I'm uh, glad. I'm very, very glad. I've got a novel that I'm that I'm finishing up here. I've been finishing it up for a scary number of years, but um, it really is by the end of the year it will be done, and so that's going to be a good feeling. That's great. I think that what's going on in the United States with respect to whistleblowers and their rights, and the whole pressure to divulge sources, and the erosion of the journalistic activity here is frightening. I don't know what you feel and think about it, but it's frightening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of the battlegrounds right now, uh, one of the key battlegrounds. I think that, you know, the whole reason why whistleblowers are such big news is because there are very few ways nowadays for the word to get out, for truth to get out from either from a monolithic corporate, you know, structure or from a monolithic governmental structure that quite often leans heavily on the corporate structure. And the only way to do it is for someone on the inside to say, wait a second, this, this feels like breaking the law here, you know? And, uh, and these laws actually incentivize that, protect them, but also say, you know, hey, if you can prove, you know, there's, there are a handful of people who proved that GlaxoSmithKline was doing horrible, horrible, breaking the law in all kinds of horrible ways and off-label marketing and various other things. And the settlement was $3 billion, and they got a substantial slice of $3 billion. So, you know, if it pays off, it pays off big. Well, I'll be very much looking forward to reading that new book and your novel. How is your extra virginity, the sublime and scandalous world of olive oil doing right now? You released it this year or last year? It came out last year. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's going well, as far as I can tell. You know, it's, it's this sort of post-publishing world where you really don't know. Um, I mean, there are, we did very, very little in the way of, of publicity or there was, there was basically no book tour or anything like that. Um, but it's going well. It's going well, and it's it's been translated into seven languages, and and uh, so it's yeah. It, it's it, I, I I'm amazed on my website how much traffic there is. I poor website. I just I flinch every time I think of it because I just don't. I can't dedicate the time that I should um, to keeping that going. But um, but it's it, it definitely has gotten people's attention, and I think one of the keys is that it it also opens people's eyes to the fact that what is true, as I said at the beginning, what is true about olive oil is also true about a bunch of other foods, and we better wake up. Is your site truthinoliveoil.com? It is. Is it like a clearinghouse? Are you also putting great olive oils? I notice you have a section under great olive oils in North America, Italy, Spain, Greece, Portugal, Germany, France, Australia, and the U.K. coming soon. I think that's great because once the consumer knows, then they want to know, okay, well, where can they get good oil? And I think it's great you're going to maintain a list. Right. That side is to sort of get you know a get the word out about the bad stuff, but b above all say okay if if, if here's a problem well here's the solution, and um, you know it would be a full time job to run that site, and I think it would probably probably be worthwhile, but I just I just can't afford to do it. I have a list of oil recommended oils, supermarket oils that I recommend, um, you know, and a range of different shops broken down in the states by state. Um, it's by no means in, all inclusive. I mean, I'm sure I've missed a lot of really good producers and a lot of really good shops that sell good oil, um, but it's a start anyway. That's great. What is your criteria? Do you mind sharing your criteria for evaluating their substance? Not at all. Uh, I mean, I also have uh, how to how to buy good oils. It's sort of a you know cheat sheet for people who you know want to know um, what the what the key questions are. 
um, and and that's there right next to it. But basically, um, you know, it's oils that I like um, that are in fact real extra virgin. Typically, I I know something about the producers. I know where they are. Not always, but um, you know, sometimes I'll have a, rec- a strong recommendation from one of the few um, people out there that I really know and trust. So it's not all firsthand, but it's mostly firsthand, which is why it's so small at this point. Sure. Well, I want to thank you for your enormous contribution to the public and for letting us know about olive oil, about what we should be looking for, about the history of it, the exotic nature of it, and some of the deep problems in the underbelly of the industry, the international industry, including the politics with it. And thank you also for the work that you're doing that you're going to be bringing us in the next year and two years. And I look forward to talking with you again. Thank you very much, Kim. It's been a great talking with you, and I, and I uh, thank you for your work because you're really getting the word out about these things. So it's team team effort. Indeed. We have been talking to, learning from, and listening to Tom Muller, the author of Extra Virginity, The Sublime and Scandalous World of Olive Oil. Tune in and find out more about him. Pick up his book and go to truthinoliveoil.com. It's rainmaking time. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Kim. <laughs> 